0: I'm continuing our sermon series in the Epistle to the Hebrews. So uh, that's where we have gotten to is chapter 8. And of course, we have been away from this study for a while. We kind of came back to it last week when I did a a psalm of focus. that's related to this part of Hebrews. But uh, the last time I preached on it, several several weeks ago, we had some guest preachers and various things and special sermons. But uh, we covered from Hebrews 8 verses 1 through 6. That's what we covered. And today we're going to cover the rest of the chapter, verse 7 through 13. So um, I want to do a little bit of review for a couple of reasons. One is because it has been a long time since we did those first six verses of Hebrews 8. And the other reason is because of the content of that section. It is really pivotal to the whole section that we're in now. It's sort of a transition between where we were before about Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek and what comes now in the future about how he is a, a superior priest and the ways that he is superior to us. And the content, it, because we weren't, we haven't done it in a while, is one reason. The other reason is because it's such a, it's such a useful and precious passage that, that we need to keep before us. It's something we can apply every day. You know what what it says in those about our Lord Jesus. So so please give attention now. I'm going to read back from verse one. Okay, so our new content is seven to thirteen, but I just want to read the whole chapter. Well, here is the word of God. Now this is the main point of the things we're saying. Okay, the main point that he's getting at in Hebrews. What is he setting? What is he emphasizing in this whole epistle? What is it about? We have. Such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer gifts and sacrifices according to the law. Who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he, he said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying, know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sin and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more in that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. There we end the reading of God's word. Thanks be to our God for his precious word. So for our review, okay, these first six verses, Hebrews 8, 1 through 6, they tell us that we have such a high priest. So there's a context to that. He's, talk, he's been talking about Jesus and what kind of a priest he is, priest after the order of Melchizedek in the previous chapters. And then he says, we have such a high priest. The last two verses of chapter 7 that precedes this reading, uh, he, what, what it tells us why he's called such a high priest. First, because he is a priest who can save us to the uttermost. Okay, That's what we've seen before. Not a halfway salvation, complete Salvation. Second, because he lives forever to make intercession for us, he's always there as our priest, always accessible, always before the Father for our sake. And third, because he is completely without sin, as it says, holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's the only one that's like that. He's the only one that has those credentials. Now I urge you, then, and this is where the practical part comes in, to make use. Of this priest. He is there for us as a priest. And what do you do as a sinner? You go to your priest. Who is this priest? Jesus, the one who's reigning at the right hand of God on high. Jesus, the one who has no sin. Jesus, the one who made an offering for our sins. We should be always going to our priest. He's able to help us in every way that we need help as sinners. We have. Such a high priest. We need to remember that. Don't go along groveling in your sin or continuing in rebellion. No, come to our priest. If you come to Christ to be delivered, he will never reject you. He will never fail you. No one comes to him and is cast out. In 8, 1 through 6, the nature of his exceptional ministry is described. First, we're told that our priest has all authority in heaven and earth to save us. He is seated, as it says, at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he's a priest that has the full authority of God. He himself is the son of God, but he became flesh. And now as the one who became flesh, he has all authority in heaven and earth. He is seated at the right hand of Yahweh as our mediator. He was always had all authority as a son of God. But now he has that authority as the mediator, the priest and the king that we have. Second, that our priest ministers in the true sanctuary of God rather than in a mere copy made with men's hands. In other words, he does not bring us to a building where we meet with God and have a bunch of people in, with incense and uh, sacrifices and altars and all of these things that that was an integral part of the Old Covenant. It was a pattern. It was a copy. He has the real... He he brings us together with God. Sanctuary where we meet with God. He brings us as people right into fellowship and communion with God. He establishes sanctuary with God so that we have God as our God. This is a, a remarkable thing. And then third... We're told in those first six verses that our priest has something to offer. It says that since he w- was received up into heaven, he must, as a priest, he must have had some kind of sacrifice that was acceptable to God. That's the idea. And it's going to develop that a lot more, because we know what the sacrifice was. He, he gave himself as an offering for our sins, and his sacrifice is wholly acceptable for our sins. Otherwise he wouldn't be there. he wouldn't be reigning. At God's right hand. And then fourth, our priest is the mediator of a better covenant that is established on better promises. Now, the word established means it's legislated or established by law upon better promises. So because of what he has done, God has brought these promises to us out of that. It's actually a thing of justice Because Christ has met the conditions of God's law for sinners, that these promises are legally ours given to us. The father has assured us that we have these these uh, these promises. And this is what we're looking at this morning. And we're going to look at various aspects of those four things I just mentioned in more detail as they're unfolded in Hebrews as we move on in this uh, book. And here in the rest of chapter eight, it's especially about the covenant, the new covenant and what that entails and the better promises of that new covenant. So that's today's topic. The rest of Hebrews 8 speaks about the superior excellence of the new covenant over against the old. So God's word tells us here that there was something wrong with the old covenant. That's corrected by the new or fixed. Does it actually say here that there was something wrong with the covenant that God made with his people? It does. But we need to understand what that means. Verse 7 declares that there must have been something wrong. Because if the covenant was fine, why did God make another covenant? Why did he make a new one? If it was adequate, if it had everything that we needed, why a second covenant? Look at verse 7. For if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. What is meant here by the first covenant? Is it the covenant that God made with Adam? Is it the covenant of works that he made about not eating the forbidden fruit? No, it's not talking about that one. We could call that the first covenant. Sometimes it does, but it's not talking about that here. Is it talking about the covenant that was made with Abraham? That was one of the first ones. No, it's not talking about that either. Here it refers to the covenant that God made with Israel at the time that He brought them out of Egypt. How do I know that? Well, look at verse 9. You Look ahead a little bit here. What does it say about this new covenant? That it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So here, the first covenant... Is the old covenant, and it's called the old covenant. It has something, and it says that there's something wrong with it. Now it seems surprising, doesn't it, that God's word should say that the covenant was not fault- faultless. I mean, he he says As the people were not fault, but he says the covenant itself. He says that first. How can that be when God was the one that made it? Well, let's consider. There are two things that were wrong or insufficient. With his covenant, first there was something wrong with the covenant itself. Okay, it was not faultless; it was perfect as far as what it was designed to do. You see, it was designed to show God's people their sin. Okay, that's what the old covenant did. It, it brought our sin before us. It made it clear that we're sinners; that we need to be reconciled to God. It was designed to show the people what needed to be done to change them and to secure their pardon. It said, this is what has to be done. Blood has to be shed for your sins. So it did that too. Its faultiness was not that it failed to do what it was supposed to do. It was perfect in that regard. God did it. He did it with a purpose. But that it was inadequate. It was not sufficient to restore us to God, to provide what we needed. If you go to the doctor and he tells you that you're very sick and that you need heart surgery, and uh, then that doctor has done his job as far as diagnosis goes. Suppose he even provides a video or graphic display of what procedures need to be done? And he, he figures all that out. He lays that out. Here's the surgery that needs to be done to straighten out what is wrong with you. This is what needs to happen. That's all well and good. But if there is no one to perform the surgery, then that's inadequate. It's, it's got a fault. There's something that's missing He can draw up that contract perfectly of what needs to be done, that document to show what needs to be done, but that contract is faulty in the sense that there's no one who's available who can actually do that. You're still dying, and you have no remedy. You've been shown what's wrong, you've been shown what needs to be done, but you can't do anything. You're going to hold on to that until you can find a surgeon. So can you do this? This is what I need. This is what I need to have done. And it's going to give you the hope that there is a remedy. And if you're promised a remedy, of course, then that makes it even better. God used Moses to show us what was wrong with us and what needed to be done. Through Moses, he even gave us a covenant that exposed our sin and that specified ceremonies, by ceremonies and rituals, what must be done to take away our sin. So it was, it illustrated what needed to be done. That temple and the incense and the washings and the priests and the sacrifices, all of that, his it showed His people what they needed and they were to keep on, it, God commanded them to keep on doing those ceremonies to keep before them What was needed over the years so that they would not forget until God provided. You see, he had promised to provide when he made his covenant with Abraham. And even before that, with Adam and Eve, he had promised in a very shadowy way. So God said, I'll provide the sacrifice that you need. He said, I will do what's needed to bless you and make you my people and to bless the nations with salvation But it had not happened yet. As long as we only had, we could really call them actors, showing us pictures of what needed to be done or or living out these ceremonies of what needed to be done, we were still in need of a priest who could actually do the work. One like Jesus, who would be seated at the right hand of the majesty on high with all authority. One who would be able to bring us into God's pure sanctuary to have real communion restored with him and one who would provide the only sacrifice that could actually take away our sin. What good was Moses and the whole Old Covenant system? Paul tells us in Galatians. It was given to us, to use the language of our illustration, as a contract for us to hold on to until the one came who would do what needed to be done. It was to keep us waiting with patience. Because what would be our danger? That we would drift off. That we would go off to trust in other gods. That we would go away from what God had appointed to trust in Him in a false and distorted way. That we would twist these things. No, here was God's way, and the people were to hold on to this pattern until He provided the priest that He had promised. All the way back to the time of Abraham... God had promised and all the way back to the time of Adam, as I said before, he had told of a son that would come a son that would come from the woman, he said, and to Adam and Eve, a son that would come from Abraham's loins. He told Abraham that would bless Abraham and all the nations he would provide. He would be provided for them that priest that was needed, that was displayed in all the Old Testament Ceremonies and rituals. Abraham and his offspring were given the covenant of Moses with a special place, the land of Canaan, where they would hold on to this covenant by faithfully performing the rituals and holding on to the commandments of God, even though they exposed their sin, all the while looking to God to provide the son that he had promised to redeem them. They, of all people, had the solution. They had the covenant of God showing what was needed and what God was going to do. And they were to hold on to that and continue in that way faithfully before God. That was their duty. It was to them that God would bring the surgeon, if we want to use that illustration, that he would bring the priest who could fix everything, who would perform the surgery. But there was So that was the first problem with the covenant was that it couldn't provide what needed to be done. It did what it was supposed to do, but it couldn't provide for the need. Then there is a second problem with the covenant and that had to do with the people. See what it was? There was a problem with Israel, with Abraham's descendants. Look at verse 8. It says, Because finding fault with them... Not with it now, but not with the covenant in this case, but with the people. He says, behold, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant. So the problem was not just with the fact that the old covenant did not provide the priests that they needed. It was also with the fact that the people did not keep even that covenant that they were handed to hold on to until he came. They did not hold on to the pattern that God had provided them in the old covenant they did not do that faithfully. God had asked them to continue in that way. And he had commanded them to do so and He had until his son came. But they kept on drifting away. They kept on rebelling. They neglected and distorted the pattern that God had given them with the priests and the tabernacles. They, they added their own rituals and ceremonies and distortions and twists and all kinds of things. High places where they offered incense to God and and sacrifice. They they even turned to other gods, false gods, for their help. God was still going to provide the priests that He had promised through them. He had said absolutely He was going to do that. His faithfulness to Abraham, He was not going to go back on that promise. The Son would be born to them and not to someone else. But He continually had to send prophets to correct them, to rebuke them, to say God's going to send this or that nation against you. God is going to send famine. He's going to send a, you know, whatever trials and things, so that they were brought back to God over and over and over again as He faithfully preserved them. In time, though, their rebellion became so great that they had become useless. As a people setting forth what God had required by those ceremonies that he had given them. They had so distorted things that it wasn't even a model that you could get anything out of anymore. God said, I'm sick of your worship. They they had become so twisted and distorted with their own imaginations and additions and perversions that God rejected them. Verse 9 explains that the new covenant will not be according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt because they did not continue in my covenant and I disregarded them. Perhaps you remember what God did when he disregarded. I mean, it was it was devastating. He raised up the Babylonians to come and destroy the temple where all of the ceremonies of the Old Covenant were already to performed. God destroyed His own model that He had set up because it was so perversely used. They carried off, the Babylonians carried off Israel's king, their priests, the kings who were types of the one that would come and reign on the throne of David forever and ever. And the priests that were representative of Him who would come After the order of Melchizedek and offer the sacrifice that could take away our sins. He brought an end to the whole business for 70 years. He brought a halt to it. The nations as a whole had rejected God and the way of salvation that he had appointed for them. This nation had rejected it. And so God had good reason to cut them off. Nevertheless... God always preserved a remnant. God promised that he would restore the old covenant worship before the Messiah came. And that after that, he would make a new covenant with them in which he would provide the son that he had promised. He'd always promised. He always preserved a remnant of those that followed him. So his plan was not thwarted say it was interrupted. Psalm 89 actually gets into that. You read Psalm 89, it talks about the wonderful mercies of God and it goes on about his faithfulness to David and how he's going to have a son on the throne forever and ever. And then it says what happened? Like they wrote that when they went in when, when the temple was destroyed, when they went into Babylon. What happened? God has turned away from us. He's forsaken us. And, and in a sense he had, but not utterly. He was going to bring it all back. So, with God's son, we have the priest Who can do what God told us needed to be done in the old covenant. He is also a king who always does the will of God. Unlike David and all the rest of them. David was a man after God's own heart, but he also had times when he deviated. Christ does not. Now that the son has come, we have a much better covenant than that old covenant that was the pattern of what needed to be done. With much better promises. Here are three promises that are highlighted. That are better. Now that he has come. That There's a sense in which the people of old had these things. Abraham knew God. Abraham had a new heart. Abraham was forgiven of his sins. So was Moses. So was David. But now when Christ came. These promises are enhanced. And enriched. And. And there's a fulfillment of the foundation that, that lies beneath these promises. So the, let's look at them. First, the promise of a mind and heart that is in sweet harmony with God. Okay, that's enhanced in the new covenant. That's better. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. In the Old Covenant, God's laws were written on tablets of stone. Now does that mean that God never wrote the law on people's hearts then? Yes, He did. But that was, the, 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 the thrust in the New Covenant is the, the heart. The, the moral law that was given then summarized the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments, and then the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That was the way that God created human beings to live. Okay, What you have in the Ten Commandments, and the, uh, it's a summary. In the love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A summary of what pleases our Creator. It's the right way. It's the beautiful, lovely way that a human is to live from which we all fell. It's the way of happiness and the way of joy. It's what is good and pure. We had it spelled out for us, you see, by God at Sinai. But we were not promised the ability to live this way at Sinai. We were just told that this is how we're to live. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. So it it struck the people when they heard it. You remember, they were terrified when they saw what God requires. And he made it terrifying deliberately because it is a terrifying thing to come before God as a sinner. Our hearts and minds are twisted and perverse. We do not love what pleases God. But are drawn like maggots to defilement. Like the maggots that go to the, the, the defilement and corruption. That's what we're like. God is not pleased with that. And we're helpless to change our sinful disposition. And so when God gathered his church. If he leaves them to their own way. Then they gravitate to idols and immorality. This is what happened to the nation of Israel when the idolatry and sin became so great that God dragged them off to Babylon. They had the directives. They had the commandments. But where was someone that was keeping those commandments? Where was someone that was actually doing what was required and what needed to be done? They actually never had anyone who was even capable of doing that. There were some faithful men, but no one. Measured up to what God had required. They had the directives. They had the commandments. But they did not have the grace to follow. When Jesus came. The whole church. That same church. That was made up with people like. You know Adam after he was redeemed. With Abraham. With different people. Noah. Different people through the ages. David. That same church. Was changed when Jesus came. Okay, it, it became a church that was in harmony with God now. It had been out of harmony and now it was in harmony with God and His law. How did that happen? Jesus became a man. He became human flesh. He beautifully and fully kept God's law, pleasing the Father, delighting the Father, the law was deep in his heart as we sing in psalm 40 he was made the head of the whole church the one who represents us all before god the way adam did in the beginning because he was uh, because he had the law in his heart and mind the whole church now has the law in our heart and mind what did the church become when jesus came with being the head of the church, the whole church became a church that had the law of God in its heart and mind. Perfectly and beautifully. Because our head does. You see, he it, it transformed everything. Us without Jesus is a sinful church. Us plus Jesus is a righteous church. Us with Jesus as our head is a righteous church. We are all counted righteous because our head and representative is righteous In Adam all die in Christ all are made alive. But that is not all. There's still more. Not only are we counted righteous in Christ, when he is our head, he also gives us the spirit that he has, the Holy Spirit to work in us and change and transform us so that God's law actually becomes that which is written in our heart as individual members so that we come to delight in the law of God and i want to say he did that to his elect people even before he came okay but the event that happened that made all this possible is his coming it begins with the new birth when he does this in us as individuals okay when we wake up and we say i'm a mess I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I've got to come to God. And our, our heart, our attitude changes toward God's law. And we want to follow God. We want to belong to him. We want to please him. And we come to his son for salvation. Then we progress as he works in us. Sanctification. We become more and more conformed by his spirit and word working in us. And his providence working in us to bring what we need to grow. To grow. And become more like Christ. In the end. He brings us to perfection. When we see him. We will be like him. This is so encouraging. He actually has the remedy. He actually fixes us. He not only changes the status of the church. By as our representative becoming the head of us. He also actually transforms each one of us as individuals so that He brings us up to be that truly those who have that heart and mind that delights in the way of God and that pleases God in all that we do. The Old Covenant, as far as it went, was powerless to do anything more than tell us what we needed to do, how we ought to live, how we ought to go on in God's law. But again, don't misunderstand. The Lord worked in the Old Testament saints too, or they never would have followed Him How did David get a heart to write Psalm 119? David was born of the spirit of God. How could he be called a man after God's own heart if he had not had that work in him? Yes, God had told, had even told Abraham that he would work in him. But the difference is that now we have a perfect head in Jesus Christ so that it will never happen that our leaders will rebel and go against God. Because Jesus is the leader, He is the priest, and He is the King. Those who know Jesus as their Savior will always have a faithful King and priest to represent them, and to be counted as those whose heart and mind delight and conform to the will of God. And as we look to the to this promise to write His law in our heart through Jesus, our head, He will make it happen. As verse ten says at the end, God will be our God, and we will be our and and we will be His people. That's the promise. He made that promise to Abraham. He made it all through the Bible. It's at the very end of the in Revelation as well. It's the promise of life in harmonious conformity with our God and creator. What a marvelous thing. Those that were once dead in sin can please God. Now, another promise, the promise of the new covenant that's better, the promise that we will all know God is better now that Jesus has come. It's found in verse 11 was an interesting way of expressing it. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brothers saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. So it doesn't just say they'll know the Lord. <laughs> it, it, it presents it in a more colorful way, doesn't it? More kind of rich way. But uh, it's actually caused a lot of uh, <laughs> of discussion and different interpretations about what it means. Some say that it speaks of the end when all is finally brought under God and the church has no unregenerate people. They will all know Him. Okay, and we won't have any teachers then. We'll be before God in His presence. We won't have any teachers that are necessary. Now, a peculiar adaptation of that is held by a few modern Baptists is that it speaks of the change where in the New Covenant, everyone in the Covenant knows the Lord. But it's obvious that that's not true in practice. The church has always had and still has many unregenerate people in its membership. Even churches that try their best to discover if people are born again before admitting them. And then they still have to remove or have cause at least to remove unbelievers that they receive that are actually unregenerate people. It has always been the case the true sons of God are a remnant according to election within the church. But there's nowhere that there's a church on earth that's all regenerate people, only in an ideal way, and that's always been the case. There was always a remnant according to election, Old Testament, New Testament. There's no change in that matter. So no, this seems to be talking about something different. Some say that it's simply speaking in relative terms, and I think there's a lot of merit to that, uh, that there's you know more people that know the Lord, that we, and even that we know him better. I especially think that's something that we need to see in the new covenant than there was in the old. This, this is certainly a legitimate interpretation. The Bible often speaks that way. For example, you have in uh, John where it says that the spirit was not yet given. You know, what? The spirit was not yet given? The, whole, but the Old Testament talks about the spirit coming upon people all the time. What does that mean? It means that the Spirit wasn't given in the full way that God had said that the Spirit would be poured out at Pentecost. He was not given in that way. It doesn't mean it not, the Spirit was not given at all. And see, sometimes people will read that and they get confused. And they say, oh, there was no Holy Spirit. And No, no, no. That's not what it's saying. There was no Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. No, it's, it speaks in relative terms. What about the kingdom? When did the kingdom come? Were, were the people in the Old Testament in God's kingdom? Yeah. But they were waiting for the kingdom to come. Well, wait, they were in the kingdom. But then it came, and now what are we doing? We pray, Your kingdom come. We're, we're still waiting for an even final manifestation. So the Bible speaks that way, and we need to understand that and not get caught up in the language and come up with weird interpretations that, that can't even, aren't even fathomable. You see, we, we need to just follow the way that the Bible speaks. So I think that the best way to understand this is that we all know the Lord and the new covenant because now he has been openly revealed as never before. So it is kind of a relative sense that we know him better now than we did before because he's been revealed more fully. As John says, when Jesus came in the flesh, we beheld his glory, as the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth, when God is revealed in his son in a way that we can we can handle and look upon and see and see what he did, how he walked, how he lived, then we know the Lord better than the people could have known him before because he's more fully revealed. We all know him. Now we can say that we have seen the Lord. He has been manifested and made known in the sight of the nations. And all who come to believe know him as their Savior and Lord. The Old Testament people knew him Through the shadows and types that they were given. They knew him through theophanies that were given to them. But we know him in spirit and truth. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We see his life with eyes enlightened by the Holy Spirit. We do not rely on prophets to tell us about him as in the days of old. To say, I had a vision and this is what I saw But we see him as the one who walked among us and who loved us and who went to the cross for us. We have a history of him and what he did. Yes, we know him through the prophetic scriptures. But he's actually been physically living among us. And we have the record of that given to us by those prophets so that we're not relying on someone else's thoughts about him. We read about how he lived, what he did. We know him. When this verse says that we don't need teachers, it certainly does not mean here again, don't want to come up with strange interpretations. It doesn't mean that we don't need preachers and teachers in the New Testament, because what did Jesus do? He sent out preachers and teachers (laughs) to go and proclaim the gospel to all the nations and to disciple them and to teach them to observe all things that he had commanded. And the ones that he raises up for us today in the church are so that we won't be carried about by every wind of doctrine and and go all over the place. He's chosen to give us instruction in that way. No, it doesn't mean something weird like that. It rather means that God is the one who opens people's eyes to enable them to see Jesus who has been revealed. It's something that human effort does not achieve. Like, I'm a minister. I cannot make any of you see the truth of God. You have to be taught of God. And so in that way, you don't need teachers to do that. God is the one that does that. He's the one that opened your heart to love Him, to believe His truth, to see Him. My task is just to set forth the truth. God is the one that that works in you. So this is not achieved by human effort. We preach Him as Jesus commanded, but only the Spirit can open the eyes that could not see so that You may know him and notice that he does this to all different sorts of people from the least to the greatest. A brilliant theologian who is master of the original languages and knows the scriptures inside and out knows the Lord. But a simple man who could never even learn to read may know and love the one who died for his sins just as much as the brilliant scholar does He can love him even more. He knows the Lord, his Savior. That's what we're talking about. A praying three-year-old knows him. A poor widow who has buried her husband and all of her children and who has been through many trials and sorrows may know him better than some great theologian that's admired all over the world. And so does a hard-working farmer and a once crooked politician who now found repentance and still has a bad reputation from all the things that he did in the past. All the elect are taught of God. That's more the case in the new covenant because Jesus has come and he has been revealed and we know the Lord through that glorious revelation of the one who died on the cross for us. The third promise was certainly known in the old covenant, but is better known in the new covenant is the promise of a complete forgiveness of sin. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. There are a number of ways that this is better in Christ. First, when we look at the church as a whole again through the ages, we can say that in a sense, remember what I said before, the church was not righteous until Jesus came? In a sense, it was not pardoned until Jesus came and went to the cross and shed his blood. Yes, clearly God forgave individuals. Don't misunderstand. He forgave individuals in the Old Testament, to be sure. He said that he forgave them. But what I mean is the church did not yet, as a whole church from beginning to the end of the world, did not have an atoning sacrifice for her sins yet. Not until Jesus came and provided that. She had ceremonies that represented what needed to be done, but were powerless to take away her sin. As we saw, they were just a pattern designed to keep her looking to God to provide as he had promised to provide through Abraham. In in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided, is what God said to Abraham. The sacrifice for sin will be provided by my hand, and it will be a son born to you, he had told him. Once Jesus finished his work, then the church was no longer a church waiting to be provided for the atoning sacrifice to take away her sins. Now she was a church that had full provision in God's son. And she could declare that it was done. That Christ has suffered and died for her, for her sins. And that he has been raised again. And that the father has accepted his sacrifice forever and ever. And she was to proclaim that all over the world. He went, we went, as a church... From being guilty to being forgiven. From a guilty church to a forgiven church. From being a church waiting for God to provide to a church that had God's provision. From Christ promised in ceremonies and sacrifices to Christ given. The new covenant in my blood, my body given for you. Promised versus given. There was a change. There is then a greater joy. A greater assurance, a greater revelation of God's love. The transaction is complete, and now we know what God did that He actually gave His Son. We can come boldly to God because we can rest in the finished work of God's Son. We can more freely confess our sins because we know that there is a sufficient offering to take away our sins. And we know that to doubt the sufficiency of that sacrifice would be to make light of it. It would be sinful for us to say maybe what Jesus did isn't sufficient. How can we even suggest that the blood of God's son might not be enough to secure our pardon? There is something final and complete about forgiveness in the new covenant that was not known in the old. See that you embrace this reality then with joy and with gladness. Don't go around with guilt. When you have a Savior who has been fully revealed, it does us it, it, it does us a lot of good to think about that. You know what what would we be apart from the sacrifice of God's Son? We'd be condemned to hell if He had never come. Let us declare the good news to our neighbors, to our children, to the nations. Let us shake off our guilt and give thanks to Jesus, our Savior. He has set us free. Things then are much better in the new covenant than they ever were in the old. God's law is written in our hearts by Christ and His Spirit. We know the Lord through Christ revealed, and we have the forgiveness of sin through His sacrifice on the cross. Verse 13 reveals to us then that the old covenant, it actually reveals to us now that the old covenant has faded away. Verse 13, it says, a new covenant, He has made the first obsolete in that he says a new covenant. When he said it was a new covenant, he has made the first, the old covenant obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So when that was written, it was becoming obsolete and it was vanishing away. But we're a lot later than when this was written. You see, this is that now the old covenant has faded away. Keep in mind, this was written in about probably AD 60. At that time, it was becoming old. It was growing old, ready to vanish. In our day, it's fully obsolete. The Lord gave his people, you see, a time of transition from old covenant worship and practice to new covenant worship and practice. The mode of worship was changed. When Hebrews is written, these statements are much stronger than, say, when Galatians was written. At Galatians, Paul insisted that they shouldn't carry out the, um, that they shouldn't make the Gentiles be circumcised. But he did not, there were still people that were practicing Old Testament ceremonies at that time. But then you come another decade to Hebrews, and he's saying, yeah, those, you need to get away from those Old Testament ceremonies. That's not the way it is. That, that stuff is going away. We've got something new now. And then what happened after that? 70 A.D. The definitive blow, God destroyed the temple where all those rituals were carried out. He put an end to it, it was becoming obsolete, it became obsolete. Now it is completely obsolete and has vanished away. It's easy to see why the old was to fade away. When you have the reality accomplished, you don't need the pattern promised. When a surgeon when the surgeon performs the surgery, you don't need to hang on to the plan of surgery. It's done. When you go out to eat, you don't need the menu after you've got your food. Unless you're curious and say, oh, I wonder what that other dish was like. Can I see the menu? But you, you got your food. You don't, you don't need it. You, you enjoy the food now. You see, you're, you're not anticipating. Now is the time for us to partake then of the blessing of Christ. Now is the time for us to eat. Now is the time for us to believe and to receive life and to receive forgiveness more than ever it's the time. Now is the time to behold the glory of God that is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. To know Him as He can be known now. Now is the time to declare His glory among the nations and to grow in His likeness. In Christ, we have everything that we need. Now we prepare for His return. We feast on the blessing of the new covenant and we spread the joy of of our salvation to the peoples. Do you know? This joy. Don't hold yourself off. Our Savior has come. Let's go back to the first part of Hebrews 8. We have such a high priest. Come to him. He gives life. He gives blessing. He gives salvation. He brings forgiveness. He changes hearts. Come to him and he will receive you. Please stand and let's call on his name. Gracious Heavenly Father, we praise you. That we have such a high priest as our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, who has all authority in heaven and earth, who can do anything. His authority is not restricted. And we praise you that he is also the one who has made an offering. That he has made an offering that you have already accepted. That our forgiveness is secure. And we praise you that he is the one who has a heart for you. David had a type of that. He has it. And we thank you that we are given that heart by him that we have that righteous standing before you and that we're given a new heart as we come to you. Lord, I pray that there would be no one here who would hold themselves off of Christ. Father, we need only to fall upon him. We need to trust in him, give ourselves to him and say, Lord, take me, I'm a mess. Take me. The old covenant shows us that we cannot dare, we dare not to approach you. We see the, how the people trembled when they were... When the, the thunder and the lightning on Mount Sinai and the earthquake and even Moses trembled. And he saw that you were a consuming fire. That you're a holy God. But Father, we praise you that we have a mediator that stands between us. And your holy wrath is the God who is just and holy. And that it's not that he came and said, I'm going to fix this. It's that you and your grace and mercy said, I'm going to provide a savior for you and you have done it and you are pleased with him and you're delighted with him. There is no reluctance in you to forgive us of our sins. There is no reluctance in Jesus to come and to do what he did. And we thank you that he has accomplished it. And we pray, Lord, that we would enter into the blessings of the new covenant, that we would know you, O oh Lord is you have been revealed and that we would rest in that cleansing and forgiveness that we would not go on laboring in our sins and father we pray that that we would have that new life that you promised to us that that we would grow in that new life that we would have that new heart and that we would grow in that way of delighting in your law within our within oh father fix love in us we thank you for the hope that we have we know that Even that last thing of growing in your grace, it's something that, you know, it's still still a lot of need there. But we thank you that when Jesus comes back, that's going to be all complete, that, you know, we will see him as he is. and We will be like him and then everything will be straightened out. We thank you and praise you, Lord, for the hope that we have our risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. There is no one like him. He is the only savior. He is the one that the people waited for for thousands of years. And that you sent forth in the fullness of time. And now he is the one that is the savior for all the nations. He is the one that is to be proclaimed to every tribe, tongue, and people. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to do this with faithfulness and joy. We pray that we would delight in our savior and our God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus, by his coming and his gracious work, has unshackled We might say the blessing of God, it's able to to go out to his people, the the blessing of our our triune God receive now his blessing upon you. Now, may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.